is Matt Markin, and welcome back to another, I think, fantastic episode of the Adventures and Advising Podcast. We are at episode 87, and on today's episode, we're talking first-generation college students. Why? Well, because it's November, and November 8th is a national first-generation college celebration. And we have special guest today, Zachary Desjardins. Zach is a proud first-generation college graduate. His passion for higher education stemmed from his time as a charismatic student leader, where he received a BS in social work. He went on to earn an MS in Student Affairs Administration and a Master's of Public Administration. Currently, Zachary's role is a university academic advisor for the Academic Support Center. He is a dedicated professional who isn't afraid of tackling the institutional and psychological barriers that exist for first-generation college students. He previously served on UAlbany's First Generation College Student Success Task Force and currently is an active member of NACADA's First Generation Student Advising Community Steering Committee. Zach's ultimate aspiration is to become an inclusive and collaborative leader in higher education policy and administration. They firmly believe that with the right positive policy and infrastructure reforms, Higher education can be a place that not only improves first-generation college students' lives, but their futures as well. Zach, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you, man. I'm really glad to be here. This is really exciting. Yeah, and before we start, like with our first, usually our first questions about your background and your path in higher ed, we both have a certain person we know, and he's a good friend of mine, a friend of the podcast, prior guest on the podcast, and that is uh, Michael Drew, or as some of us call him, Mike G., so I want to kind of start actually with this question is, uh, who is Mike G to you? Yeah, so Mike G is actually my direct supervisor, also known as mentor, because um, Mike will often mentor me even outside the position just to kind of help me understand the ins and outs of higher education, how to navigate the bureaucracy, things like that, or even just someone I could just lean on when I need to talk to him about some issues I'm experiencing in my professional career. So go, Mike. Love Mike. <laughs> <laughs> so I had uh, told Mike that I, that we were going to be recording together for the podcast. And so I said, tell me about Zach. Um, and so this is what, what he wrote back to me. He said, Zach is one of the most passionate and enthusiastic higher ed professionals I have had the pleasure of working with. He has a special gift when it comes to making students feel welcome, seen and heard as he learns about their individual stories, especially those who are first generation. His compassion and dedication runs deep with supporting both his students and his colleagues as they work to achieve their desired goals. Uh, Zach's approach to academic advising is purposeful and always centered around remember their why. Uh, so, Zach, tell us about you. What's been your journey in, in higher ed? Yeah, so I would say my journey in higher education is actually a very unique one, and it's kind of a long story, but I'll try to keep it brief as much as possible. But basically, I would say the first time I was actually ever exposed to higher education and understand what higher education was truly all about and everything was when I was in ninth grade. I remember sitting in a classroom. I remember my English teacher, um, Mrs. Fall. So shout out to Mrs. Fall if you're watching this. Um, I miss you very much. And she was a big uh, part of my life, especially growing up in adolescence in the small town of Shazie, New York. And she said we had a guest speaker coming to speak to class. And her name was Julie Kuhn. Once again, shout out to Julie Kuhn. Um, Julie Kuhn was actually an Upward Bound counselor. And I remember she was telling us about this program that she worked for called Upward Bound. And it was at SUNY Plattsburgh, which was 20 minutes from where I actually grew up in Chazy. And she says, hey, we have this program called Upward Bound. It's for people who are first in their family to go to college or people who come from low-income backgrounds or students who may have learning disabilities, invisible or visible disabilities as well. As well. And um, Julie says, basically, what we have is a summer program where you're going to take some college classes or even classes that are just going to prepare you for the following year of um, school and all that kind of stuff. We also get to go on trips. She even showed us this awesome video of like things that they did in the previous summer, which I thought was so cool. And I was like, dang, that sounds so cool. Like, I would love to be a part of that. I mean, it must have cost a million dollars because I, that's each, I didn't know how much a million dollars truly was. And then Julie's, I remember Julie said that her famous catchphrase was, and guess how much the program costs? And I went, and I, everyone guessed, and I think I guessed like maybe $250 or $300 at the time. And she's like, well, joke's on all of you. It's actually free. And I was like, what? That's crazy. So I remember I came home and I rushed to tell my parents, like, mom, dad, hey, this is really kind of cool. There's this program called Upward Bound and all this kind of stuff. Um, we should really kind of check it out and everything. I'm like, I would love to do that. I think it would kind of really help me because I'm, at that time, I always really wanted to go to college. I had some big aspirations and everything. And I was like, you know, I really want to go to college. I think this can help prepare me for that. And so my parents filled out the paperwork. And I remember the day, I think it was like sometime in like 
April, I believe, maybe April or May, I got a letter in the mail that said, congratulations, you've been accepted to the Upper Bound program. And I remember I was just being so enthusiastic. I was so excited. Um, those times when I was in Upper Bound as a student were some of the best summers of my life, even to this day. Um, I met some of my closest friends possible. Uh, one of my roommate, current roommates, actually, fun fact, uh, we were both obviously roommates in Upper Bound. And we actually were roommates all the years of Upper Bound together. This person is also going to become part of my wedding party someday when I get married because we're like that close. Nice. Um, I even keep it still keep in touch with a lot of people I made friends with in high school. But because of that, like I said, that program really prepared me for exposure to higher education. Mm-hmm. Then I remember I graduated and I had this really big dream. I really wanted to go to this one school and I really put all my eggs in one basket. And I remember the day right before I was actually supposed to leave to actually go to the college instead to move in. My dad just says, hey, everything is good, right? Like, you know, you don't have to worry about anything. I'm like, no, I think everyone's fine. And my dad's like, you may just want to call just to make sure things are good before you move in. Because I was planning to go to school in, um, near the Rochester area of Rochester, New York and everything. And so I called them and um, they told me like, hey, I just wanted to let you know, uh, we were trying to recalculate your financially because I guess there must have been an error that exists. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, you owe the college around $6,000. And I went and I was like, what? Six thousand dollars? Like, I didn't even like to me, like that was a ton of money and it still is even to this day. Yeah. And I told myself when I was like, oh, well, what can I do? Can I do like a payment plan? Is there things I could do? And like, but we need that money within the first two weeks of school. And I come from a very low income family. Uh, both my parents um, worked extremely hard. Um, in the fall of 08, my dad ended up losing his job. Um, my mom always has worked as a direct support professional for her entire life. So she didn't really make a lot of money either. And I remember it was like, well, can I do this or can I do that and everything? And I tried to talk to him about different plans. And long story short, it just didn't end up working out. Um, during that time, to be completely vulnerable and honest about the situation, I ended up falling through a very big depression. I felt like I wasted my time in Upward Bound because Upward Bound prepares us to go to college. And I was the one few person who just didn't go. So I felt guilty because I was basically taking advantage of this huge program that really helps support these students. And I'm like, this could have went to someone else who could have went to college. So I remember I told my dad and my dad's like, well, hey, doesn't because the dream dies doesn't mean the dream just ends. It just means it has to be postponed. And I was like, no, but dad, like, it, it's not going to happen. And I was in that mindset. And I remember this time my dad's, well, hey, you got to pick yourself back up. So do something, you know, at least do something with your time. So I applied for a job at Sam's Club where I used to work in the meat department, you know, as a meat wrapper. So I used to wrap the meat, stock the shelves. You know what I mean? I used to even once in a while cut meat because some of my coworkers would teach me how to had to cut the meat in the office. And that was kind of cool and everything. And um, I ended up working that job for a whole year, year and a half. I remember Brian Post, once again, shout out to Brian Post, the director of Upward Bound, has been trying to get in touch with me because I, I think what he did was he wanted to make sure we all went to college, but he heard that I didn't go to college because it's a very small town. Plattsburgh is a very small area. So it's kind of easy to figure out people and what people are doing. And so Brian has been trying to get in touch with me and I kept on ignoring his calls because I felt, like I said, I felt ashamed. I felt horrible. You know what I mean? I, I didn't want to talk to him because I didn't want to admit to him that I couldn't go to college. And, everything. and I remember one day he actually went to Sam's Club itself and he was actually going shopping and he bumped into me and he goes, hey, Zach, what are you doing here? And I was like, well, I'm actually here because I'm actually working. And he was just like, oh, weren't you supposed to be in college? I think he knew it was kind of like a loaded question. So. You know, and I was like, yeah, that didn't work out and everything. And Brian's like, well, here, call my number. Don't feel shame. Don't feel guilt. Let's talk. And I remember literally, so I was going to meet with Brian on my only day off. It was on, I want to say it was like a Tuesday or a Wednesday. Um, I called Brian. You know, I was in Plattsburgh. Um, and Brian actually brought me to this little, like a little uh, sub restaurant that's famous in our town called Zook's, Zook Subs. And I remember we were having a Zook Sub. And then Brian was like, hey, you can still go to college. There's still possibility. You know, don't let the dream die. Very echoing, very similar to what my dad told me. Sometimes, you know, life is not so linear. I think sometimes we kind of go about things. We think that, oh, one plus one has to equal two. You know what I mean? But that's not always the case with life. There's always these hidden variables. So Brian's like, why don't we go back to the office? Think about where you're going to apply to. You know what I mean? You have an idea what you wanted to do. And at that time, I actually wanted to be going to actually like, Fun fact, actually, it was more like an ministry work because um, Christianity was a huge part of my life at that time. And so I was like, you know, I actually kind of want to go more into like becoming a history teacher because that was always the sub area I always wanted to go into as well. I'm like, I want to be a history professor, things like that. So Brian's like, do you know SUNY Plattsburgh has a great program? And I was like, they do. But to me, SUNY Plattsburgh was always the type of school 
um, that my mom, she used to work at SUNY Plattsburgh in a, basically the subsection of it where she worked at Third Age Adult Day Center where she worked with people who had Alzheimer's or other developmental disabilities. Mm-hmm. And so SUNY Plattsburgh was always like my home, even in SUNY Plattsburgh Upper Bound. So I roamed those halls ever since I was a young child and I just thought it was too familiar, but I'm like, you know what, I'll apply for this. Long story short, I worked with Brian and I worked with Julie, my previous counselor, Plattsburgh Plattsburgh, and I got in. And um, ever since then, I would say things have gone up. I basically started his, studying history. And then I remember things were got a little more difficult. You know, and so I ended up talking to my TRIO advisor because at that point they actually had TRIO Student Support Services, which is another TRIO program just like Upward Bound, but they help students while you're in college. And so I connected with my TRIO counselor and I remember just talking to her about how difficult things were. And I told her I was falling out of love with the love of history that I once had. And I said, honestly, and I feel like this education system is just flawed. Why is it that like people like me have to work twice as hard or why do I always feel like I'm so far behind, even though I know I'm two steps ahead? Right. And she really articulated to me what the first year in college student was all about and that experience mm-hmm. and what that truly felt like. And she said, rather than look at the negatives, look at it more as a positive. Like, this is a source of strength for you. And so because of all those great things and all those interventions, I was like, well, what do I do? How do I change it? She's like, you know, there's a program like that where you can work in higher education. You can make an impact <laughs> in students' lives. It's like, what's that? And that's when we all have the Creso light bulb of the student affairs higher education around. And I said, well, how do you do that? She's like, well, we actually have a program like here on our campus. You should reach out to the person who's chair that program and figure out what kind of things they would like to see. And that's what I did. So once my sophomore year happened, you know, I reached out to her and I realized that, hey, I really want to do the major of social work. Because that was really important to me. So I ended up doing the major of social work. And then I started looking at grad programs at the time. And like I said, I'm sure you're going to ask later questions about my more experience why I was in undergrad itself, because it relates to some things I got involved with. Um, but because of that, I had a long tumultuous journey throughout my undergrad and I had a lot of pain, but I also had a lot of joy. You know, I got involved with a lot of different things. I became a brother of Phi Mu Delta National Fraternity. Um, so that was amazing. But I also got to surround myself with a lot of like-minded people to kind of help propel me forward. And like I said, that kind of became my entrance into higher education because I understand what it was like to not have a college degree, which really truly made me appreciate what it was like to actually have one. And then when I went to Binghamton, like I said, what you mentioned before, and got the dual master's program in public administration, as well as in student affairs administration. I ended up getting my first job at Corning Community College for TRIO Student Support Services, where I worked specifically with first-generation college students and students who had learning or physical disabilities. And I really loved that. And that was amazing. Even throughout my time in graduate school, I also worked as an RD or what they called ARC. So it was basically a part-time RD who was a grad student. I also had a supervisor who was an RD, things like that. And all that stuff really just made me really appreciate higher education and the gift of a college education you can actually truly have on so many different individuals and what people do with that gift moving forward. It truly inspired me, which then now lead me to my job at UAlbany because unfortunately my job at Corning Community College that I got my last year of grad school, COVID hit. And so a lot of things happened. Budget cuts happened. Um, we actually had the grant did not get renewed for my position. So I ended up having to find another job. And thankfully UAlbany was hiring a a university academic advisor where they're trying to implement a new four-year advising model. So someone who has more of a holistic advising approach. And thankfully they offered the job to me and along with, I want to say eight or nine other people. And so we call ourselves a COVID squad because we all hired all at once. <laughs> um, and since I've been at UAlbany and I said, that's when I met Mike G as my supervisor and the rest is history, you know? Yeah. You know, it, it's one of those things too, you know, life always has the ups and downs, but it seems like at parts where you're kind of, you know, maybe down with things that are happening, like you didn't necessarily seek out. So they just kind of happen to show up and then kind of plant the seed and say, Hey, do you know about this program or this program that then led you to these opportunities and taking advantage of those, which I think is fantastic. Um, and then just kind of, yeah, kind of keeping that positive spirit throughout the whole thing. And a lot of it kind of starts with, was it Julie that kind of mentioned the, the upward bound program and kind of how things kind of, came about afterwards. So I think that's a fantastic story. And you're able to share that not only on this podcast, but also with the students that that you meet with. So kind of leading into that, you know, first gen students, what would be your definition of a first generation college student? Because it seems like it's slightly different depending on institution that, that you're at. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Cracking the college admissions code just got easier. I'm Rebecca Gordon, your go-to fictional college admissions counselor for the rich and famous. Tune into The Admissions Game, Satire Edition, 
and uncover my top secrets for surefire Ivy League admission. Ditch the old Photoshop your face onto a water polo hunk trick. We reveal all the latest loopholes. So laugh and learn with the admissions game wherever you podcast. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I agree with you. I think the very definition of first-generation college students is very difficult and something in the landscape I feel as a profession, I think we should try to address. Um, but that's a whole other conversation aside. But I define a first-generation college student as a student whose neither parents have earned at least a bachelor's degree, regardless of other sibling status. So I have two older siblings, two older sisters, who I love very dearly. You know what I mean? Neither of them actually got a college degree except for my one of my older sisters, Bernie, she actually ended up getting a college degree after I got mine because she was inspired by my work going back to college that she decided to continue that along as well. So at that point, even if like, she got before me, I she would still be a first-year college student. I would still be a first-year college student because you know our parents have earned at least a bachelor's degree. We were mentioning earlier when we started the recording that this is going to be going out on the first week of November or first full week of November. So you have um, November 8th being National First Generation College Celebration. Uh, what can you tell us about that? And is that something that you Albany also uh, celebrates? Yeah. So this is actually a huge um, initiative that usually happens along a lot of other campuses. Um, I can't say every single college does this because obviously you really need to look into that as well. Um, but basically it's a date that's on like November 8th. You know, it happens every single year. They call it National College Student Celebration Day. Um, I know a lot because also a lot of times when the programs I was part of, like when it came to like trio and things like that, what ended up happening, they would always do an event that happened on this day. Um, I know um, basically U Albany, we basically started the push of actually supporting first-generation students on an institutional level. And so because of that, um, lately I would say we had a whole full week of events last year to really kick it off. It's the first time we've ever did something on that day and even that week, which was part of the part when I was actually in the first generation college student task force, mm-hmm. student success task force. And so that was really kind of cool. And um, this year right now, um, I can't really tell you if there's anything much really going on. Um, I know there's some offices trying to work on things. I know currently right now, because I'm a, one of those people, I'm a self-motivator. So even right now I've already partnered up with them. Um, her name is Princess Otis, who works in the C-STEP and Project Excel program which are two programs that actually work with a lot of first-generation college students themselves. And I actually worked with her along with um, a, a newly found group on the first-generation college student union that was actually, I helped actually start up at UAlbany. We're actually collaborating on an event called Leaving Our First-Gen Mark. Hmm. And um, basically what we're doing there is we're actually having this time where first-generation college students can now showcase their artistic abilities, whether it be through music, through poetry, through a photograph, through a painting, a, a dramatic scene, you know, things like that. We're going to have people do that. And then what we're going to have people do is trace their hand. And when they trace their hand, they're going to color in their hand and they're going to put their name in the middle. And in the middle of the poster board, it's going to have something along the lines of leaving my first gen mark at UAlbany. And what we're going to do is we're going to hang that poster board up for the rest of the month of November. It's at our campus center. And so, and so we can just so all first gen students who see it are going to see that everyone's handprints and everything all on the poster board. And also see, also showcase the wonderful talent that exists within this amazing community here at UAlbany. So that's one thing I'm doing on the side. But um, like I said, I think the university is also planning to do other things as well. And I'm really hoping they do. But for right now, that's what I can tell you. As of right now, that's what's actually in the books. I think it's a very uh, creative concept. And I hope you get a lot of students that participate in. Now, in your bio, you, it's mentioned that there, there can be institutional and psychological barriers that exist for first-generation college students. Uh, talk to us more about that. And you know, can you give us some examples? Yeah. So one thing I would say when it comes to more of the institutional barriers, I think the hidden curriculum is huge. Oftentimes when I talk to students, they always look to their peers because that's the only time you can really gauge. And a lot of my first year college students feel like they're so far behind or they're always two steps behind at always. And I think that's because, you know, a lot of times when you have parents who actually go to college, you kind of have an idea how things operate and how things work. Parents kind of give you um, a rough idea. Obviously, things have changed even within the past year, within the past 10 years, 15, 20 years, even within the last month, to be honest, in higher education. Um, but because of that, a lot of times these students, they look at their peers and like, well, they already get to go to financial aid. They already know how to understand their financial aid bill. Why don't I understand my financial bill? Is there something wrong with me? You know, and I love to quote this one person uh, when I actually held a presentation where I actually talked about uh, first-gen family achievement, you know, which goes into another issue is family achievement guilt when it comes to more of the psychological barriers. But one woman said, it's crazy how when we define first-gen college students, we always say it's basically a student whose family does not have 
a bachelor, at least a bachelor's degree you know, with their parents. And it's like already they're already operating at a deficit. And I and I, that really hit me really hard. I was like, wow, that's crazy to think about. You know, so we're already looking at these students at deficit. So anything when it comes to institutional barriers, you also have faculty who have an old old school way of doing things. They may not realize they're doing this or our implicit biases when they kind of come out. We always look at students who are deficit approach. And we always say, oh, these students need our help or there's something wrong with them. But there's nothing wrong with these people. It's a system that's put in play that's been difficult for them. You know, it's a system of play that's not into their advantage. So I think even just I'm becoming more aware. So I always tell people is even my coworkers, if you see the hidden curriculum, you know, don't make it hidden, make it known curriculum. Don't assume a first generation college student knows everything that's going on in the institution or also don't assume they don't know things that are going on in the institution because some of them are very well aware. They know what they're doing and they're very intentional with what they do. The beauty of a first grade college student is they're not a monolith. So they come from a lot of different backgrounds. They come from all different ways of life, different cultural, ethnic backgrounds, different abilities, different gender, sexual orientations, all that types of stuff. And so we shouldn't be a monolith either as a professional when working with these students. You know, we shouldn't find one way of doing things. We need to be intentional, impactful, you know, connect with these students, be individualized. When we work with these students, really get to know our students and talk to them more on an individual basis and kind of figure out how can we support them through their individual needs? Because that's the best way we can best support this population because they don't all look the same. Yeah, because, you know, because I remember we were chatting prior to the recording, and I think this kind of a lot of it ties into is you had mentioned that, especially when relating to student conversations that like advisors or even as students, like we don't see as, you know, we don't see things as they are, but as we are. Exactly. And and then um, you had also mentioned that like as advisors or advising professionals, we really need to consider you know, how concerning it might be um, to a student when we tell them like, oh, you know, go to this department. And then we kind of just like let them roam off and hopefully they get there and they may not know where that department is or what to ask or who could be a contact person for that? Now, you know, I'm sure too, like it always comes out to time constraints as well with, with, with our appointments. But um, for you, it's kind of like we really should go that extra mile to assist our students, no matter who they are, and ensure that they know what to do based off what information we give them. Yeah, exactly. And I say do that across all your students. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean? so you know, whether this student's a first generation college student or not, all of your students, when you refer to them in research, don't so, so, so say go to a financial aid. Go to, like, let's say, Matt, I'm going to use an example because he's the easiest person I can see right now. But go to Matt Markin in financial aid. And this is what the process is going to look like. Ask him these types of questions. Because the problem is they also do, you also want to develop, like, a normalcy amongst these students because then you don't have to worry about being super intentional with all your practice or feel like you forgot something when you're working with a first-grade counselor because it's your natural practice to dismantle the hidden curriculum. You know, because the hidden curriculum is created because there's a lot of implicit biases you know, there's a lot of implicit systems or processes that exist in the college education system. So if you make it well known, it doesn't matter who you work with. The cool thing about music first grade and college students is the practice you do with first grade and college students, you can apply that to any student population, and they're only going to benefit from that service. Right. You know? yeah. So if you can, so if you practice that even with your non-first grade and college students, it's only going to impact your first grade and college students when you work with them as well. So right. that's why I say refer them to people because the campus itself, the hidden curriculum is large. Mm-hmm. Make campus feel small. Make it feel like a small town campus. You always a huge college. And so I tell people, make campus feel small by connecting the individuals. Connect them with the process. Let, give them that key saying, hey, this is what the kind of questions they're going to ask you. These are the kind of things they're going to be looking for you. Do you know these questions? Do you want to brainstorm? A, do I, people hate this, but I love role playing. You know, mm-hmm. so sometimes I'll even role play with my students about what the conversation is going to be like. Because then if they don't know something, it's okay. Then we can figure that out now. So you don't have to feel shameful when you do connect with that service and don't know that answer. Now, I mean, you know, based off your experience too, like for you growing up and things that you've mentioned already, and, you know, maybe as advisors working with students is, you know, you've mentioned the, the shame and the guilt part. And as much as, you know, we can try to connect with our students, they might still continue to have that shame and guilt. Any advice for advisors when they are working with, whether it's first-gen students or anyone that is experiencing that shame and guilt? Yeah, I always recommend people to do is validate it. It's a very real feeling. I think the hard part is, is that when we work through people who have the shame and the guilt, and especially when it comes to first grade college students, is that you're not going to cure it. You know what I mean? It's not going to come overnight. You know what I mean? It's an endless struggle. What really helped me out a lot when I was an undergrad was someone actually validated, you know what? That's a great feeling. It's okay to have that feeling. Like, thank you for actually addressing that. Thank you for like talking about that. And let's unpack this. What's going on? 
in your life. And at that point, I remember telling my um, story, which I tell this in my presentation about the story of my dad. When my dad got really sick, and I remember even having a conversation with my mom being like, I don't know what's going to be life without having you having a father. Mm-hmm. You know, I, mean? I don't know what's going to be life without me having a husband. You know, I felt so guilty because while I was going to college, I was an RA. I got to live in a place in, my, in a dorm, you know, in a residence hall. Mm-hmm. But then what ended up happening is I ended up having my parents were calling me saying, hey, we may actually end up losing the house because of finances. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I was like, how is it fair that, like, I got to live on a place on campus, but my family was struggling to find a place where they could be. I had a full meal I could go to. I could go to the downhill, swipe my meal, swipe. But my parents didn't know where the next meal was going to come from or how they're going to afford food. You know, things like that. And so that's a very big reality. So I think just validating that concern and knowing that you're not going to probably fix it, which kind of really sucks, especially in working in a higher education profession. We're always here because we want to help students. We want to fix some of their problems. Mm-hmm. And, I, and it's horrible to say, but you're not here to fix anything. It's up to the onus of the student to make sense of their right. guilt, make sense of their shame. Because they may not come up to you and tell you, hey, I feel shameful. I feel guilty. Because right. I didn't do that when it came to my advisor at the time, my trio advisor, when I was experiencing that. They, they started to understand, oh, do you feel guilty? Like they actually brought that to me like, well, do you feel guilty because all these things are happening? And I was like, wow, that's a great way to put it. You know what I mean? And I didn't realize I was going through that until literally I came up with this presentation I did for Nakata. Then I realized that actually this is actually a common occurrence that actually a lot of students face. Even my job currently right now, and shout out to Mike G because we mentioned him before. Um, I remember my second week of my job, my parents were having issues with their house. And I remember talking to Mike and being like, Mike, I can't be here. I have to go home. I'm going to have to leave my job. Thanks for the job. And I really appreciate this offer, but I got to go home. I got to find a job closer to home because my family's struggling. And I feel guilty being at you all because I make more money than both my parents did combined. And I'm like, I can't, I can't do this. Yeah, I have to go home. And Mike was like, this is exactly why you're here. This is why we want you in this office. This is your value. This is what you bring to our office because we know you. You can leave this office. That's fine. But I want to let you know what you're going through right now is going to be a huge impact on the story of these students that you talk with. You're going to be able to connect with them on such a deeper level that some other person can't because you're going through this right now. And you're also not only making yourself better as an advisor, but you're making our staff better by you just being here. You tell me the story by going through what you're going through because you will bring a value to not only your role, but also to our institution. Mm-hmm. And because of that long conversation, we also have a lot of personal things. Mike actually grounded me. And I was like, you know what? He was right. And I'm so glad I stayed here, you know, because now I got to make an impact on all these students. If it wasn't for Mike actually taking time out of his busy day, being my supervisor, you know, to really connect with me and really help me understand and validate that guilt. I don't know if I would even be here talking to you right now. Man, you know? <laughs> and that's, that's the beauty of it. You know what I mean? And I wouldn't be able to even find my niche within our mm-hmm. office as well, working with first grade college students. So to answer your question, I think just validate the guilt, be there with them, talk to them, articulate the college process. Just right. give them that extra mile. One of my coworkers, John Martinez, who I love very much as well, which as you can tell, I give a lot of love to a lot of people. So <laughs> I apologize. Um, but he always says the greatest gift we can give our students is our time. And that's a privilege. It's a privilege that these students, that we are able to actually have that much of an impact on these students' lives. So we need to take this privilege of giving them that time you know, and use it to our best of our ability and to make an impact on these students. So use that time to really sit with them, talk with them, connect with them after, follow up. Yeah, hey, I know you talked to me about this. How are things going? Like you said, we mentioned before, just make campus feel smaller and make them see, feel seen, heard, and valued. And let them know that they are a valued member of our institution, our profession, all that type of stuff. Because they are, and they truly do every single day. And they remind me, like Mike, you said before, Mike reminds me of my why. My students every single day remind me of my why. And I let students know that on a daily basis. Like, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for all of you here coming to my house and talking to me about these things. Yeah. Never apologize for giving shout outs. I mean, <laughs> where, where we're at based off other people that have mentored us or been part of our lives that have helped us since, you know, even just one little quote that just led us on a different trajectory. So, you know, we got to give people their, their kudos, their flowers. So yeah, never exactly. apologize for that. Um, you. you know, you were mentioning the, your, the presentation for Nakata. So that one was a co-presentation, I think, that you did. So that one was called uh, Breaking Barriers, Empowering Resilience, Overcoming Family Achievement Guilt and First-Generation College Students. What was your experience like? And how, did, how do you feel things went with your presentation? Yeah, I think, I think it was amazing. And shout out once again, Shannon Sousa. I see you, my co-presenter. She was amazing. We did a lot of great work together. 
Um, I would say since we've actually gone to call it like a joke around and call it our tour. So I love music. So I call it like basically we're like a band and going on tour because we not only present for Nakata, but we also present a lot of smaller colleges as well. You know, because of our presentation at Nakata Region 1, we a lot of people reach out to us asking us, hey, can you actually present for our college? We actually would love to hear that. So we're actually bringing this message to the masses, which was actually kind of cool. And the research that we stumbled across, and we even brought that researcher to all these other people who work with first-year college and let them know, like, hey, you know this research actually exists. And so that presentation was so cathartic, you know, and I think for me, it really kind of helped me actually like, make some closure on some of the feelings that I actually had. It also made me make sense of a lot of those things as well. And it just rejuvenated my um, love of this profession of higher education. You know, it re- rejuvenated based on my experience. And that so cool is that we have so many great people who are working in the work, uh, doing the great work inside the professions of higher education and doing amazing work. And not only that, but they're also making such a huge impact on our students. It also makes us realize how human we are as well. Like we, I've actually had people personally message me on the Nakata app or even through my LinkedIn. You know what I mean? Being like, hey, I finally felt heard and seen for something I've been experiencing that I just never knew it actually happened. And so things like that were just incredible. You know what I mean? Another one as well as I remember even when we presented at um, Region 1, we actually had um, this one advisor who was talking about how he was working with a student and going through this guilt and all this kind of stuff. And it was so magical. And the person who was we're talking about was also in that audience as well. And he did not realize that. And that's something we didn't even set up beforehand. Wow. And so it's been such like a magical, beautiful moment. And it also has been giving so many professionals who are doing this great work that affirmation, like, no, you're doing the great work. Keep it up. But it also gives people who may not actually think about this as a concept to also be like, you know what, maybe I should start talking to my students, have deeper conversations and like actually talk to my students who are experiencing this. And right. I actually need to take the time to actually make word for this. So that's also been really great as well. Like you said, it literally has just been beautiful. And I've even tried to be even more intentional now that I know this research exists to even talk to my students more in a more intentional conversation about this. Mm-hmm. Um, I also am fortunate enough to teach a, a zero credit first-gen seminar class, mm-hmm. first-gen culture and seminar at UAlbany. And so I've even incorporated this whole lesson into my curriculum. Well, let's talk about the class because you just mentioned it, it's zero units. So is it a requirement or how do you get students to uh, kind of join in to, to take this class? Yeah. So usually what we do is um, basically we'll have is advisors when they go through the file, we make schedules for students mm-hmm. um, here at UAlbany. So we'll go through, we have a batch of students we go through. We will look through their file and then what we'll do is we'll look through it, make their schedule and then we'll send it out to the student. And if they want to make changes, then we obviously will make a few changes, things like that based on their needs. So basically what we do is we kind of leave it up to the advisor itself kind of go through their file because when they look through their student application, it'll say, your parents love our education. So they'll look through and if they actually have the definition that I just mentioned earlier in this present, um, podcast, that they'll go through and they'll be like, okay, this is a first-year college student. Do I think they would benefit from them? I'll put them in the class. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so basically advisor will actually place those people in the class. We used to also teach in the spring semester where students will opt into the class. And so usually that will happen by advisors talking to their students about it. Or not, I will also talk to some of my students about it. I'll even send an email out to all first-gen students that I've worked with in the past or present to have them enroll in this class. Uh, but this spring, we're not actually not going to do it this spring just because we have some unique plans that we're going to do for a fall. So I'll, I won't mention all those because I'm still trying to work all that kind of stuff out. Uh, but basically, we just have people place them in the class. And then I even tell the students, like, this is a zero class. You don't have to be here. But if you really want to actually engage in this, I can guarantee you, you're going to take away something beautiful in this class. And it's only for eight weeks. You know what I mean? So it doesn't take up most of the semester. It's only for around an hour. And I tell students, if you want to show up, you're going to take away something. Or you may not realize you're going to take away something until the very end. And then that's when things change. And so because of that, we go through different lesson plans. I have things where we have talked about financial aid. And not only do we go through our financial aid bill, but we also talk about some deeper things. Like if you can't afford college, what's that like? We also go through the the social um, social environment itself, like how do you get involved on campus? How do you, well, the importance of the, understanding your first-gen identity and what that truly means to you. Understanding the college experience is a varied experience. It's not just the one and done. Everyone has varying difficulties or even achievements that they accomplish when they're in college, things like that. So we talk about those types of things. And now I said before, I'm trying to bring in the achievement guilt because it actually brought about one of my students, what actually is why I did the presentation was because mm-hmm. we were talking about well-being and the importance of mental health because mental health is a huge passion of mine as well. Um, my father has bipolar. 
um, depression. Um, so me trying to bring people out to the masses, understand what um, depression, mental health, things that are super important. And we're talking about well-being and dis, um, dismantling the stigmas that exist when it comes to mental health. And I remember how one of my students who actually mentioned me in the class was like, hey, I feel like I have to sacrifice part of myself just to succeed in college. But then when I go back home, I have to sacrifice what I learned in college just to fit in with my family. Then when I come back to college, I just feel like I'm a walking shell of a person because I don't know who I am anymore. Is that normal? And how do you expect to retain someone who doesn't even know who they are? And then, and then I remember they told me that in my class when we we're just talking about well-being and how things people are doing. And that hit me like a truck, Matt. <laughs> I was just like, oh, my gosh. And I remember I even got a little teary-eyed because I was going through the same thing when I was an undergrad. Um, they didn't know this, but, like, when I was going through that, I was well. I was even experiencing that in my professional career as well. And I had to tell my – and I went up to the student. I was like, you know what? It doesn't go away. And it's not going away. But it's I'm always reminded of it. But instead of running away from it like I used to in the past, I made sense with it. I use it to empower me. And I tell that to all my students. It's like – Use your first-gen story to empower you moving forward. You are a pioneer. You are a trailblazer. You're a leader. All these types of things. Right. Um, but that's a long story short to tell you uh, why the Uni9 exists and why people register the class. But <laughs> the great things that actually exist within the Uni9 has been truly a beautiful, beautiful thing for me. Now, I'm interested in uh, another presentation that you did. I think this was a few years ago, so it's like 2019. So this was, uh, I think, around the time that you were an assistant residential coordinator. Um, but you did one uh, called Making the Invisible Visible, uh, working with first-gen college students in uh, the residence hall. Yeah. So I was interested to know about uh, kind of the, the backstory behind that one. Oh, wow. That's a, that's a deep cut. Let's yeah. go. <laughs> yeah. Um, so basically what I was, so basically what we did is um, for residence life, um, they basically had a call for proposals to actually present for RAs mm-hmm. and stuff on how to work with stu- certain students or certain student groups. And a lot of my um, RAs who I actually supervised knew I was a first gen, like, Zach, I think you should do a presentation on first gen because a lot of the first gens just aren't coming to our programs. They're not getting involved in the campus community. They don't really feel like a sense of belonging. So I was like, okay, maybe if my RAs are struggling how to engage with first-gen students, I'm sure this is something on Binghamton University's campus. That's a huge issue as well. So I literally um, submitted a proposal for RA training, you know, which was entitled that same exact presentation that you just talked about. So one thing I would say is what I did was I kind of just talked about how do we actually make these first-generation college students feel heard? You know, how do we make them feel seen in the residence halls? Because um, a lot of times RAs would just go away, oh, I advertised my program, but they didn't get they didn't get it or they didn't understand and things like that. So I basically try to give them step-by-step presentation on actually how to engage with these students, like build the connection and talk to them. Once again, dismantling the hidden curriculum. You know, they may not realize that RAs do programming every single semester. They may not realize that they can go to the RA to talk to them about issues that they're experiencing about college as a whole. Their sense of belonging, they probably don't understand because you haven't specifically invited them or talked to them. So they know they can actually attend that meeting that you're trying to have or that program that you're doing. So it kind of just gave tips for a lot of other um, resident direct, uh, resident assistants and also resident directors who were in attendance. How do you actually work with a first generation college student population when it actually comes to the residence hall itself? I feel that could be like a rolling presentation you can do at various schools and, and conferences. So if you have, maybe dust that one off too and, and keep doing that one. Oh, um, <laughs> Other things that you've been part of, you know, you talked a little bit about uh, being part of UAlbany's First Gen uh, College Student Success Task Force. Uh, you're currently uh, on Nakata's First Gen uh, AC Steering Committee. Uh, what's been your experience like um, on the steering committee? And, you know, what are some of the goals that the steering committee is looking to accomplish? Yeah. So um, my experience on the steering committee has been absolutely incredible. I think it's so awesome to see other First Gen now they're maybe professionals, you know, who will actually work proud first generation graduates, but also people who work directly with first gen students. So the cool thing about me is, yes, I do that intertwined in my job working with first gen students, but I also see all types of students. You know, I just have a special affinity for the group because that's the group that I'm a part of. Um, but even just kind of getting their feedback, talking about what kind of trends they're seeing, kind of their experiences, what their institutions are doing when it comes to supporting first gen students. For me, like I said, supporting this population has always been at UAlbany, but now we're starting to put that a little bit more at the forefront than we have in the past. So kind of getting their feedback, their mentorship, mm-hmm. you know, has also been incredible. Um, some of the goals we even try to do this semester, well, this whole year, I would say, is put out some really great programming. Like, don't worry so much about the quantity of your program, but the quality of your programs. 
And so because I felt like we've actually been having a really high attendance to a lot of events that we've been holding, like, you know, rather than doing eight things half-assed or very uh, not really planned out or really thought about, let's actually be really intentional with our programming. Let's also get people who are part of our steering committee who actually have a great skill set, and let's bring them in to lead those presentations, have them talk about those types of things. And so that's one of the things we've been doing a lot when it comes to things like that. We've also been trying to build more on our community as well. Actually, because that's why I tell people, I said, we're advising community. Let's actually be a community. You know, mm-hmm. Let's support one another. Let's show up when someone's presenting at a Nakata conference, which we actually had a lot of other great people in our community um, actually present for Nakata. So do we show up to their programs? Send them messages like, hey, I know you're presenting today. Good luck. You got this. Yeah. You know what I mean? Things that let people know that they're valued and they're appreciated. So that's another thing we've also been trying to do too. And right now we're always trying to get the word out there. They know that our community actually exists and their advising committee, our steering committee also exists. So if you want to get involved, that's a way you can also get involved as well. But I'd say I be more intentional with our programming, but also be more intentional with our communications to one another. And actually don't just meet at once a month for a steering committee meeting. Let's meet outside as well. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I'll give you like I had one of the people who was actually on the steering committee. His name is Moises. You know, I always joke around called Moises the legend, you know, <laughs> um, and he we always joke around about that, you know, and he always laughs. Um, but he later reached out to me. He was like, hey, I'm trying to engage my first-generation college students who I work with in a PowerPoint. And he's like, I need the Zach Flair because the Zach Flair is like super <laughs> engaging, high energy, things like that. Let me know some tips for a PowerPoint. And I literally sent him a message. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I was like, hey, this is what I do in my presentations. You know, I had memes. You know, I make jokes. You know, I also try to be more engaged. If I'm excited about it, then other people are going to be excited about it as well. So even just little things like that, talking to one or even outside the meetings to kind of develop not only as us as people, but us as professionals as well. Because that's what it's all about. Like Nikhil is wonderful at is the networking opportunities we have. So let's do more of those opportunities to connect with one another, not through our identity of being a first generation college graduate, but also through the work that we do as well. I think that's a great way to uh, end the more advising uh, related questions of this interview. But as we wrap up, um, I asked Mike G to... Give me some questions I could ask Zach to end this interview um, that are non-advising related. Uh, so his first question said, you know, you just ask Zach is, uh, where did the nickname Yogi come from? Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step guide to starting your podcast today. Oh, wow. Okay. So actually, so actually, it's like a twofold thing. So one is when I actually worked at Sam's Club, uh, people were like, you're a big guy. So I'm like six foot two, you know, I'm built like a linebacker for the football, for the NFL. But I went to says, I'm just a bundle of joy and optimism. Uh, people even joke around calling me Optimist Prime. You know, that's Transformers <laughs> reference for all you lovely nerds like myself. Um, and basically what happened, they kind of say, but you're, you're like a bear. You know, you've got a beard. You're just a big guy, all this kind of stuff. We should call you Yogi. And so they said, I kind of worked at Sam's Club for a little bit. And then eventually what ended up happening was when I actually worked at um, SUNY Plattsburgh in my undergrad, um, I left Sam's Club um, and actually decided to take a plunge. Once I decided I wanted to do student affairs, I actually became an orientation leader. And uh, when I became an orientation leader, that was my first, first introduction. Like, this is how higher ed, this is actually working for the college. That's what it's all about. Things like that. And I remember, I think it was the third week, second or third week, I actually had a bunch of students go like, wow, you're just always laughing. You're always smiling. You know what I mean? You're just like really happy to be here. You know, you're high energy. You remind me of a bear. And I was like, oh, here we go again. And you're a big guy. You're just like a giant teddy bear. And I was like, well, whatever you do, just don't call me Pooh Bear. So fun fact, my mom loves Winnie the Pooh. Uh, (laughs) And so I was like, don't call me Pooh Bear because it reminds me of my mom. You know what I mean? And, um, And they're like, no, you're not Pooh Bear. You're more like a yogi bear. And, and at that time, when I became an, um, an orientation leader, I was a sophomore. So you think about the incoming class as freshmen, mm-hmm. you know, first-year students. So they ended, so ended up just calling me Yogi, like, hey, Yogi, what's up, Yogi? What's all that kind of stuff? So eventually, people thought that was actually my real name, <laughs> and it actually wasn't Zach. And so because I was a freshman class, 
Then the year after that, those people start calling me Yogi. And so it became this like giant like cult following of my name being seen, nicknamed as Yogi. So eventually everyone started calling me that. And so people say you should start introducing yourself as Yogi. And it became like more of like a tier, a term of endearment. So even my art, my students who when I was an RA, they were, oh my God, that's Yogi. Yogi's my RA. I'm like, no, my name is Zach. Like, no, it's Yogi. So they would take off Zach every single time oh. on my door and say, put Yogi instead. So then I would change my name to Yogi on my door. And it just became this cult following of people just calling me Yogi. And eventually people thought that was actually my name. And it just kind of transpired when I went to grad school. Because all my grad friends were like, oh my gosh, like Yogi's so much of a cooler name. You should just have people call you Yogi. So my residents started calling me that because they started calling me that. So then my RA said that was my name because that's what my RD and my supervisors would call me. You know what I mean? And it just became, it kind of, my name kind of got lost. It wasn't Zach anymore. It was Yogi. So I can imagine. And if it ever happened, then people getting confused. And then once someone says Zach and you answer to Zach and they're like, wait, that's not his name. No, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I remember one people, like people too, who are like always have me on Facebook. I tried to look up Yogi on Facebook. <laughs> You know, or even like a LinkedIn, and I said that like, you go by Zach. Is that your real name? I'm like, yeah, Zachary is my real name. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so the next question is, uh, where did your love for uh, bass guitar come from? Oh, that's a great question. Okay, so I'm a huge metal fan. I also love prog rock, thanks to my mother. My mom loves Genesis, Phil Collins, Peter Gabriel, all that kind of King Crimson, you know, Rush, all that types of stuff. So I remember I was, uh, first of all, I remember listening to Black Sabbath's self-titled album when I was younger because I got into classic rock. But my dad's like, hey, you should listen, check this band out. And I remember listening to Geezer Butler for the first time, you know, and I was like, ooh, that's a bass. Like, that sounds really kind of cool. You know what I mean? And I remember I was even learning the guitar at that time. And then what ended up happening was I was like, I have big hands, so people were around my bear paws, you know, because my hands are huge because <laughs> uh, of Yogi, you know. Did uh, it, uh and then what ended up happening is I'm like, you know what? I actually like bass because I really love understanding the rhythm section. Like, I love how bass is not necessarily a flashy instrument. Like, it can it can be if you want it to be. But when people are dancing, they're not going to the lead guitar shredding. You know what I mean? They're going to the bass and the drums. And I always thought that would be so cool. So you're kind of like that, like, secret weapon in a band. Because when people are grooving, they're grooving to the bass beat. And so for me, which I just did right now, <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, but they grew to that. And so I was like, that's so cool. So you're not like a show off person. Cause I'm not a show off person. I don't really like to tell people what is it that I do, you know, or even brag about those things. Um, so I like to be more behind the scenes, you know, because even just me seeing the work being done is enough joy for me. And that's the way it's in with bass. You know what I mean? It's not, you're not doing crazy things, but you're busy in the background, just letting people know like, Oh, Hey, that when you're bobbing your head, you're moving around, you're moving because of the bass player and people don't realize that. So, I say because the Geezer Butler, um, Tony Levin, who's the bass player, Peter Gabriel, you know, and then Lee Sklar, who's actually the solo bassist for uh, basically Phil Collins, mm -hmm. is why I love bass the way I do. And because of that, and because I got bass lessons um, from my old youth pastor when I was in high school, made me really appreciate the bass. And last question is, uh, who is your favorite artist or band? Ooh, okay, that's really hard. Okay, so, okay, so actually I have multiple, but I, I guess if I had to pick... I would say Phil Collins or Gen Genesis. I put them in the same category. Sure. Same with Peter Gabriel, all those things. It's very, very sentimental to me because my mom, when I was younger, used to always sing, uh, you'll be in my heart, by Phil Collins a lot. Whenever I used to get cranky. Tarzan, we talk about because I'm a 90s child. Yeah. So people always say when you're in the 90s, as a 90s child, you always have your favorite like um, Disney movie. And mine happens to be Tarzan. Mm. I love Tarzan and Phil Collins. He went hard on that album and that soundtrack, and he didn't have to. And for that, I'm forever thankful because it was a great album. So I love that. But I also love my favorite metal band, if I had to pick, is a band yeah. called Demon Hunter. I love Demon Hunter. They're a very heavy band, uh, but they also are very melodic as well. They're the ones who can do like heavy, like Metallica-style riffing, for those who know metal. But they can also do very soft stuff as well, like acoustic. Type of stuff. And I really love that dichotomy between the both. But my heart says Peter Gabriel, but my metalhead enemy says Demon Hunter. So. <laughs> well, the Phil Collins song, I mean, it, it's a great song, but I just find it amusing just how hard he did go on that song for a Tarzan Disney movie. Oh, my God. Yeah, you're telling me. Yeah, I feel like they're like, hey, Phil, don't write a fire album. You just need to write something that's going to be okay like for Disney audiences. People can sing along, but Phil's like, okay, proceeds to write fire on the piano. All oh, that yeah. Like, he just nailed that album. And I said, Tarzan is one of my favorite Disney movies. So really, oh, 
you know, it was it's great. So I I love that soundtrack. Even to this day, I listen to it. <laughs> yeah, and he went and then he did the same thing on the Brother Bear soundtrack, which is a movie that came out a little bit later. So like, Phil, if you're watching this, which if he is, wait, thanks, Phil. Like, <laughs> I love you. You know what I mean? Uh, you did great. Um, and can I tell a quick story about that cool sure. too as well? Yeah. Um, so Phil Collins, I remember even it was like in 2021, maybe it was. I remember one of the biggest gifts I ever gave my mom was actually when I bought her tickets to go see Genesis at TD Bank in Boston. I brought my mom and my dad to go see a Genesis concert. And I did that, you know, because that was the first time I'm like, wow, I actually have money to actually go see a really big band. We actually got to be really close to the, the set itself, the stage. And I remember just crying at that concert because that was one of the very last concerts Phil Collins ever did in North America yeah. before he announced retirement. It was like the second to last one. And that was like one of the most magical moments is being able to sing Phil Collins and Genesis songs with my mom. Because oh, like I said, yeah. that's what my mom and I are very like passionate about. My mom really introduced me to music at such a young age. And so because I'm glad I got to share that moment with my mom because, uh, Phil, you nailed at that concert. And it was amazing. Yeah. No, that's just like, um, like my favorite band is Queen. And, you know, oh, it's just like... Baby growing up with that and it's just like i'm gonna see them actually next month but it's it's gonna be yeah. special but knowing that it's like freddie is not there you know and yeah so, you know having missed out on that like the, oh but you know such a great voice and i guess we could talk about music for a long time with this but zach it's been great for you to be on the podcast very interesting entertaining stories getting to know you and getting to share this out to um, our listeners and learning more about first gen students, especially celebrating uh, first gen uh, day on November 8th. But Zach, thank you again for being on the podcast. No, thank you so much for having me. This has been fantastic. And if you're a first gen private first gen college student graduate, you did it. Congratulations. We stand together and feel free to connect with me anyway. If you want to talk to me on LinkedIn, like Matt mentioned before, I have a LinkedIn. I love talking to different professionals from all around the area. So thanks for having me, Matt. And let's go. This is exciting. <laughs> Oh, 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 oh,